Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm very excited. Merry Christmas, by the way. I'm very excited about this hour because we're going to talk Christmas music. Ace Collins is my featured guest this whole hour, and he will once again uh, help history come to life because he's going to tell us the stories behind some of the best-loved songs of Christmas. And when I look over these list of songs, I can't just read words because I can hear the the music exploding in my head every time I, I look at one of the titles of these songs. So I'm very excited to hear about the background behind these songs and the stories behind them. And Ace has uh, written uh, 99 books. This is one of them. It's called Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas. It has already sold out at Amazon, but if you can go to Kindle, I think it's like a couple of dollars right now. So it's a book you're going to want to have in your library. Welcome back, Ace. It is a joy to be back with you talking about music. And, you know, you mentioned it. We've talked about it before. Music's a time machine. It takes us back to Christmas's past. It uh, allows us to immediately be transported back to our childhood. And we smell those smells and hear hear those sounds and feel those feelings and see the people that may have gone on who made those Christmases so very special. And, you know, it if you have a Christmas hit, you also gain a bit of... Uh, immortality because you come back singing those songs each and every year. Mm-hmm. Bing Crosby has been dead since 1977, but we can't imagine Christmas without Bing or, That's so true. or Christmas without Perry Como. I mean, you know, these are voices that come back time and time again. And in a modern vernacular, I have a feeling 50 years from now, people will be listening to Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. <laughs> so if you score that Christmas hit, you know, you literally come back and visit us each and every year for decades. And and that's there's something about that, like kind of like a, a comfortable pair of slippers or a blanket that you wrap around you in the cold weather. There's something very comforting about having those those songs sung by those voices uh not only come back to us, but also build bridges to generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said something last time we chatted, which has really stuck with me, and it's Christmas traditions and Christmas music is really one of the last great time machines because once you go through the season or you hear some of the music at Christmas, like you say, you get transported back to uh, you're nine years old at your grandma's house and you can smell the cookies being uh, baked and and you can smell everything in the house, and it's fantastic. It is. It becomes, uh, it's probably the only holiday we have where everything comes back uh, in sharp focus <laughs> yeah. and in and, and really sharp focus. And, and and therefore, there are so many memories, especially family memories that are created at Christmas that I think we forget, we would forget about them if we didn't have those songs and those traditions uh, to bring them back and place them in front of us again, where we feel them. Literally, they become a part of us again. Um you know, you and I have talked in the past about there are certain songs you have to hear at Christmas before it really becomes Christmas. That's so true. You know, and for me, it's like white, it's Bing's White Christmas or Elvis's Blue Christmas. For my wife, it's the uh, the Christmas song that the Carpenters did in the uh, 70s. I mean, you know, there are songs 
that bring Christmas to life for people. And I think everybody has a Christmas song that is their Christmas song that they love. Mm-hmm. And I think once you know the story behind it, you, you get a you get kind of a uh, a better grasp on why it means so much to you too. Um, and and it's not just this way in this generation. It has been that way for hundreds of years with the carols. There are certain songs that people hear and immediately they're transported back. It can be in the 1600s or it can be now in, in this century. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, Ace, I have to admit I was in a boys' choir uh, growing up, so I'm going to be a little biased when I'm asking uh, for the backgrounds on some of the songs. I sang these myself, so I'm going to start with uh, asking you to talk about the first Noel. First Noel is called a French carol. It is actually probably from England. and It's spelled two different ways whenever you look at it. And basically speaking, Noel means greeting. You know, just, wow, you know, that first electric moment, if you will, when Christ came to earth. Um, you know, it's been around hundreds of years, and it's, we don't know, the, we really don't know who wrote it. You know, we know who translated it. But the interesting thing about the French and the English both claiming it as their own hymn, those two countries, which were so um, competitive and still are, share in something that's very special, and that's the birth of Jesus and the celebration of Christmas. And so, therefore, I think the first Noel is the perfect Advent song because it opens the door for us to get into the season and define all of the ways that Christmas means so much to us and all of the ways that that what happened in that first Christmas has redefined life here on earth and really redefined the way we we view history. Mm-hmm. I love that. All right. How about Angels We Have Heard on High? Uh, interesting song because man, made, uh, an Irish revolutionary named Montgomery actually wrote that piece, uh, and he wrote it as a poem to place in a newspaper. <clears throat> and this was a time when the English did not celebrate Christmas. Um, they may have had it in their homes, but there was no church celebrations or anything like that. Christmas was kind of frowned upon because it was a time of drinking and violence, kind of Mardi Gras on steroids. This Irish Catholic revolutionary wrote this song, and he wrote a bunch of other things that got him thrown in jail because he wanted uh, a rebellion. He wanted Ireland to be free of English rule. Well, ironically, he never got his wish when it came to his political bent. But his songs, Angels We Have Heard on High, did something very special. It was the first song and first carol used in the Anglican church. And imagine this man, when he was invited to an Anglican Anglican worship service in England, this Irish revolutionary who had been thrown in jail, hearing his song sung by a Church of England choir. And imagine also that the great Catholic traditions of singing carols at Christmas in churches suddenly jumped to the Protestant church because of this Irish Catholic revolutionary. He built the bridge for us to enjoy all of these songs in in worship services across the globe. And so that song is very, very important. Now, if you go back to why he wrote that song, angels are very, very important to uh, the holidays. To us, they represent something uh, that probably is not quite as angelic as we as the Bible presents them. The Bible presents angels differently than we probably think of angels. But it was the angels, you know, who came and told the wise men, hey, you know, wake up, this is happening. You know, it, 
it was the angels that were such an important part of being the trumpets that sounded, if you will, and and alerted folks that something incredible was going to happen. And so angels we have heard on high, they were literally the ones who spoke the word first that, hey, there's something going on that you are not going to believe. And to a certain degree, it changed all of us a great deal. I, I love, you know, I, I love the fact that that song in, in that time has come to mean so much to all of us. Yeah, it's such a beautiful song. And I, I've always, always loved that song and loved singing it. All right, here's a one of the most popular Christmas songs now that we're in the discussion of angels, and that would be Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Ah, but it wasn't originally Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Okay. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I love about this song, because the writer of this song, if he knew how we, he were, we were singing it today, he would not be ha- happy. He was a guy who, when he wrote something, he wrote it in the, where it was totally and completely biblically accurate. And, you know, so, so here is Charles Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, who wrote the lyrics to this song, and his, his original word was Velkin in the song, not angels. What is Velkin? Well, a Velkin means the vault of heaven makes, um, you know, for, makes noise, wakes us up. You know, it is a loud, loud bang, if you will. And so he wrote, hark how the Velkin rings, hark how the heavens explode. And, you know, when it was matched with a tune by Mendelssohn, they changed that to hark the herald angels sing. And that's how we picture it today. But 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 Wesley talked about it, the heavens exploding and with this rapture of noise to, to welcome the Son of God into the world. And yeah. I, I think we may be missing a little bit of the power that was in that original song by not singing it with Velkin and knowing what Velkin means. Now, I, I do believe Wesley would be quite proud and quite pleased that all of these years later that his lyrics, minus Velkin, if you will, were matched to Mendelssohn's salute for the printing press. <laughs> and they all came back together to give us one of the most popular songs uh, that we sing each and every year. I, I, I would argue it, Joy to the World, um, and are, are probably in, in a close second or third place to Silent Night as being the most popular of all of the carols. Yeah, well, don't, don't There's get, no doubt Silent Night is the most popular. Yeah, don't get too far ahead of me here, Ace, because I got all these songs on my list. Well, you know, when you've written three books on, on this, you know, there, there's a bunch of songs to remember. So, yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> This, these were the first 31. Then we did the stories behind the greatest hits of Christmas and then more stories behind the songs of Christmas. So when you combine all those books, there's a bunch of songs to cover. Yeah. When I think of Hark the Herald Angels Sing and this other verse that you were talking about, um, it'd be kind of nice if that was like uh, stanza three or four so we would know what he penned and that we could sing that in another verse down the road. You know, and it, it, I also find it ironic that the printing press really did open up the world for the spread of of the of uh, the study of the Bible. You know, it put books into the hands of common people, and so I, I find it kind of appropriate that this song uh, about a king who came for all people uh, and opened up, you know, faith for all people. Um, that story was matched to uh, a salute to the printing press that definitely 
had a similar effect on on uh, literacy around the around the globe. So, you know, the, that marriage, whether Wesley would have approved of it or not, was a marriage that I think, in retrospect, is very appropriate. Mm-hmm. Ace Collins is my guest. We're talking about his book, Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas. After a short break, we'll be back talking more Christmas music in just a minute. the show. So glad to be talking to Ace Collins. He has uh, written a lot of books. This one we're chatting about today is the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas. You know, you, Ace, you talked about earlier in the last segment about songs that sort of instantly trigger you. You don't really feel like you're experiencing the Christmas season until you hear it. I know this isn't in your book, but what do you think about uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas music? I think, you know, it, it evokes the memory of the of the sweet little special that it was. Yeah. And so, whereas I've never told the story behind it, because it's it's like a lot of other things, it was written specifically for that special, not not the other way around. Uh, it, it does bring up imagery, particularly for the baby boomer generation, uh, of how they were introduced, in some ways, to the true meaning of giving and 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 kind of the worshipful worshipful acts uh, worshipful atmosphere and environment that that should be Christmas because the other specials that run at the time and they're highly entertaining Frosty the Snowman or mm-hmm. or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer don't have the the spiritual impact that the Charlie Brown um, Christmas uh, special that we see every year has and therefore the music reflects that much more than Holly Jolly Christmas or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer both of which by the way I love so, yeah I yeah. do too now let's shift gears to the song that on uh, Christmas Eve, when I sing it, I have tears streaming down my face every year. Can you guess which song that is? I know what does it for me, and it's Oh Holy Night. What does it for you? Silent Night. Silent Night. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting stories of all is Silent Night, and you don't have to go back very far from a Christmas music standpoint. Uh, 202 years, as a matter of fact. On Christmas Eve 1918, a man, 25-year-old Joseph Moore, M- M-O-H-R, uh, was a priest in Obendorf, Austria, small parish there. And he had centered his entire Christmas Eve service, which would be the first one he was ever in charge of, by the way, around music. He got to the church that night, and the organ did not work. There's a lot of legends about why it didn't work. I'm here to probably destroy one of your greatest pictures for you, No, the Mice Didn't Eat the Bellows. It didn't work simply because it was old and it had been failing for some time and and happened to choose that night to finally just quit. Moore was in a panic. Uh, He had taught all these beautiful songs to his choir. He raced over to uh, one of the choir members' home, Franz Gruber, who happened to be a school teacher, and the two of them got to talking about what they could do. And it was Gruber who made the suggestion, well, I can play guitar uh, with your songs. And and Moore didn't think that was a good idea. He said the songs did not match with the guitar well. So the two of them talked some more, and then Gruber said, let's write something. It was then that Moore remembered two years before while visiting a relative, walking through a snow-covered field, looking up at 
the sky after coming out of the woods, he had been inspired to write a poem. He went back and found that poem in his files, brought it back to Gruber. They wrote music for it. And that night, Stilly Nacht, Heilige Nacht, Silent Night became the song that saved the Christmas Eve service. Now, a few weeks later, a man who fixed organs all over Europe came in to fix the church's organ. And he asked the priest, what did y'all do for music? He probably didn't say y'all, just like I did, but he didn't <laughs> say, what did you do for music? But he wasn't from Arkansas. And Yeah, that's right. You know, the southern, the southern bit of my nature comes out from time to time. But what did y'all do for music? And, and Moore picked up the guitar that he had and played him Silent Night. This man wrote down the lyrics and remembered the tune. 30 years later, Moore, who has quit using the song in his services and gone back to using standard uh, carols, is walking along a street in one of the big cities in Germany and hears his Silent Night being sung by a cathedral choir. And he has no idea how this happened. Wow. And he goes inside and he finds out that this little song that was used in that one service had been spread all over Europe by this man who fixed organs. He became the Johnny Appleseed, if you will, of Silent Night. And not only that, by that time it had been translated into numerous languages and was the most popular Christmas carol even in the United States. So for 30 years, this priest had no idea that the, the little poem he had created had become, if you will, the Jesus Love Me of Christmas music. And I, I think it's amazing that that one stopgap song is now the most performed Christmas song of all time. You know, it's not the best-selling record of all time at Christmas. That would be Bing Crosby's White Christmas. But it is the most performed and most, and most well-known across the globe of all of the Christmas music. By the way, the name of the church where it uh, more introduced that song to the world is St. Nicholas. <laughs> you just can't make that up, can you? No, you can't. You yeah. can't. It's come... You know, it's kind of like the fact that a guy, a guy named Noel and a, and a woman, his wife named Gloria, wrote, Do You Hear What I Hear? Yeah. <laughs> and it all started off as a, a kind of a one and done. They did it one Christmas oh, Eve yeah. service. It was and that, it, it that was, was it. In, in, modern, in modern language, it was a stopgap measure. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just a, a remarkable story. And I, I don't know if there's any more information about how it— uh, it felt to him to have this song become this ex explosively popular song across. Well, I could, there is information on it. They wouldn't believe him. They wouldn't believe that he wrote it. Wow. And so he spent the last few years of his life trying to convince people he wrote Silent Night and died without anyone ever believing him. And then Franz Gruber, uh, not long after Moore died, found their original copy and notes on the music. He presented it to a publisher and suddenly, after he was dead, Joseph Moore got credit for writing the lyrics. Oh, amazing. All right, let's shift to your favorite now, Oh Holy Night. Talk about your tears coming down your cheek. Oh, four different great stories in this song. Uh, but in the 1840s, a, um, a priest went to a local parishioner who happened to be a commissioner of wines in the small village where this church was located and asked this man who was a known poet to write a poem for the Christmas Eve service. He wrote that poem on the way to Paris. He was riding in a carriage on the way to Paris. He liked his poem so much, he took, to, took it to a friend of his who happened to be a, a songwriter. I guess today we would refer to him as a classical songwriter, but you have to remember back in the 1840s, a song that was written in the 1840s wasn't considered classical music, it was considered popular music. So, you know, he was a popular songwriter. 
And uh, this guy looked at the beautiful, beautiful lyrics and said, I, I think it's a wonderful poem, but you've got the wrong guy. I really shouldn't be writing music to this. They went back and forth, and eventually the guy agree agreed to write the music for this poem. Uh, the man took it back. He performed it at that church on that Christmas Eve service. And within five years, this song had spread across France. And it became the most popular Christmas carol in France. And then the Catholic Church in France kicked it out of the church for being too secular, which mm. blows me away. I mean, you know, you, you sit there and you listen to Holy Night and go, how, does, how is that a secular song? Oh, my. Well, the church, the church leaders found out that the man who wrote the music was Jewish. And they didn't want a Jewish song in their churches. Unbelievable. So, you know, kind of the height of prejudice right there, if you yeah. will. And anyway, it made its way to the United States in the 1850s, but it didn't make its way to the United States as a Christmas song. It was a part of the abolitionist movement. Why? If you remember, one of the verses has, Chain shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. It wasn't until after the Civil War that it was adopted into a Christmas standard here in the United States. In the 1870s, when the, when there was the Franco-Prussian War, a man jumped out of a foxhole on Christmas Eve and started singing, Oh, Holy Night, a Frenchman did. A German jumped out of a foxhole and answered him with Silent Night, the two songs we've just talked about. Mm -hmm. And for 24 hours, there was peace on earth because of these two songs. They went back to fighting after Christmas, but they got together and celebrated the birth of Christ for that 24-hour period. So, Oh, Holy Night became the song that actually did bring peace on earth for a brief period of time. And then you go to 1906, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A man named Fessenden was uh, working on an invention that everyone said was impossible. And it was a transmitter that was so strong, it would transmit the human voice wirelessly. You know, and we think of that as being normal now. I mean, that's what we're doing, even as we speak. But back then, that wasn't the case. It was considered uh, out of the hope of humans to create something that could transmit a voice over through the air that was picked up by a receiver. Well, on this Christmas Eve, when he decided to test his machine, he picked up a Bible and read the second chapter of Luke. I want you to imagine people who were listening at, on ships at sea for Morse code or in newsrooms or in weather bureaus or you know at government offices suddenly hearing a man's voice. That had to just blow yeah, them away. Mind-blowing, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then he picked up his violin, and the very first song ever played on the radio was Oh, Holy Night on that oh, Christmas my. Eve of 1906. That is spectacular. And so the way that we have been introduced to Christmas music ever since is through the radio. And mm -hmm. yet Oh, Holy Night was the very first song that started this revolution of using wireless transmissions oh, I love to that. share music across the globe. Yeah, we'll take a little break. Ace Collins is my guest. His book is called Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas, and there are many. We're going to come back with lots more in just a minute. Ring a -ling.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to be talking to Ace Collins, especially today, because with Christmas just around the corner, we're talking about the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas. And Ace, so far we've touched on a whole bunch of spiritual giants, and uh, maybe we can shift gears a little bit and maybe do something a little bit more playful. How about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? I tell you what, before we get to Rudolph, yeah. y'all, y'all, clo- y'all closed out a while ago with Silver Bells. Uh-huh. We got we got to touch on Silver Bells. I don't get to tell this story very often, but it's so funny because it was written for a movie called The Lemon Drop Kid that starred Bob Hope. And Bob Hope had been very jealous of his best friend Bing Crosby for years because Crosby had had a major hit with Oh Come All You Faithful, then White Christmas, then I'll Be Home for Christmas. There was nothing Bob Hope wanted worse than a Christmas hit. And when he did... Uh, when they filmed the movie, The Lemon Drop Kid, part of that was Marilyn Maxwell and Bob Hope walking along a street singing silver bells, and Bob Hope knew that he finally had his <laughs> Christmas hit. The problem was Hope decided not to record it until that fall, because that's when the movie came out. Well, Bing Crosby saw an early release of the movie, thought the, thought the song was just great, and went in and cut it and released a record before Hope could get to the studio, and Hope didn't have a hit for Christmas. He had given Bing Crosby his fourth major hit for Christmas. So his best friend beat him to the punch on his own song. Oh, wow. One of the, one of the things that's also interesting in those lyrics is it's got a line going uh, that most, most of us do not understand today um, on the stoplights bringing, blinking bright red and green. At the time that song was written, there were no yellow lights in the stoplights. They were only red and they were only green. So that is why um, there's no reference to to yellow in that song and the and the colors of the stoplights. So yeah, and you mentioned Rudolph. We can get right to Rudolph. Well, let let's just pause here for a second because I find that story really fascinating about Hope and Crosby, and I can't imagine that that went over well with Hope. I mean, I would imagine there was I would imagine there was some discussions in back rooms about I that. I bet yeah. there was. I mean, there's <laughs> a competitiveness, and, and there's also a wait, wait, wait. This is my song, my movie, and yeah. you uh, you jumped the gun on it. I yeah, I bet that there was tension there. And it was really interesting if you think about it too, because Hope, Hope, who was so well known for his Christmas entertaining of troops and for his Christmas specials on TV, right, never had a Christmas hit. Wow, that's uh, remarkable. Okay, let's go to Ru- uh, Rudolph now. You go back to Chicago, 1938, uh, wrong side of the tracks. A man's living in a two-bedroom apartment. He's a copywriter for a department store. He is barely getting by. He comes home from a long day of work, and his four-year-old daughter climbs up into his lap and breaks his heart with these words. Daddy, why can't my mommy be like all the other mommies in the world? Mm. Bob May looks across at his wife, Evelyn, who is dying of cancer. She has been fighting it for years. So his little daughter, Barbara, does not remember her mother ever being healthy. Therefore, she feels cheated. Mother doesn't take her to the park. Mother doesn't go to school programs. Mother doesn't get to read stories with her. And Bob May creates a story to cheer his daughter up. And the story evokes some of the mother's personality she doesn't know in the lead character. Well, the next night, Barbara asks her for that story again and again. And Bob, who doesn't have the money, for a Christmas gift for his daughter, creates a homemade book with homemade drawings. And on Christmas morning, he gives that book to his daughter. Uh, There are people coming by to visit the house uh, on the holiday season, but they're not coming by to wish people Merry Christmas. They're coming by to mourn the fact that Evelyn has finally died. So here's a girl without a mother and a, 
a man without a wife, and the people who come by are greeted by little Barbara, who eventually shows each of them the special Christmas present her father has made for her. One of the men who works with Bob says, why don't you read this at the Christmas New Year's Eve party? He does, and the CEO of the company is so impressed that he actually buys the rights to that story. And that that payment allows Bob to move his daughter to a nicer part of town and pay off the medical bills. In the meantime, for the next six or seven years, every child who sits in Santa's lap in this chain of department stores gets a copy of those drawings and those words in a little hardcover book. Bob remarries his his uh, his new brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, is a songwriter. And Johnny comes to Bob and said, hey, let's write a song about your book. They do. And here's, here's an irony that will go with the story we just told. They took it to a number of different artists, and Bob Hope turned it down. Could have had a hit on it. Bob Hope turned it down. Dinah Shore, who never had a Christmas hit in spite of charting more than 400 times in popular music, turned it down. Bing Crosby turned it down. Another singer-actor turned it down as well, but his wife heard the demo record and said, Gene Autry, you got to cut the song about the reindeer nobody will play with. And when he did, Barbara May really heard her mother's personality come to life. And if you think about what that song did for that family, because the CEO of Montgomery Ward gave all rights back to the family. Mm. And therefore... You know, this song became one of the most popular songs, and the book became the most popular Christmas book of 1946. And ultimately speaking, Bob May proved one of the greatest Christmas lessons of all time, and that's a gift given with love comes back magnified to the giver time and time again. Ironically enough, I tell that story uh, to our church every year because they consider it such a fitting um, a fitting story of how a gift can have such lasting meaning and a gift given with love can literally change the direction of people's lives. It is so heartwarming, Ace. I mean, that that story just chokes you up. It does. Yeah, it, it's better than any Hallmark movie. Oh, boy, is it ever. <laughs> All right. How about uh, we talk about God rest ye merry gentlemen? It goes back about 600 years. Written by a peasant somewhere in England. Now, remember I told you earlier that the Church of England and other Protestant churches other than the Lutheran Church did not celebrate Christmas as as church and didn't use Christmas music until about 1840s and 1850s. Before that, it was only Catholics and Lutherans who celebrated uh, in church services. So the hymns that were written in England, the carols, were written by common people. And one of the common people uh, put together this incredible song called God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. As a child, I wanted to know why would God want happy people to sleep? I figured God called you to action. Well, in Old England, the word rest had another meaning that meant make or keep. And so we should be singing that song, God make you merry gentlemen. And then it makes more sense. But there's another thing I found out in doing research and um the research uncovered the fact that Mary had multiple meanings six, seven, eight hundred years ago. And yes, happy was one of those meanings, but Mary also meant mighty or great. So Robin Hood and his merry men 
we think of them now as Robin Hood and his happy guys in the forest. A lot of that can, <laughs> that we, we can, you know, you weren't very happy in the forest if the king was, if the king was robbing you and you were sleeping out in the cold, mm -hmm. but you were powerful. And, and so it, we, we should be thinking of Robin Hood and his mighty men. And I think we probably should be singing, God rest ye, merry gentlemen, God make you mighty gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ your savior was born on Christmas day. And, and every year when I'm on the BBC, we talk about that some, and we talk about the fact that even in England, the word Mary now just means happy. It's lost its, it's lost its connection to mighty or great. But the English people don't say Merry Christmas like we do. They say Happy Christmas. And we've all come to the conclusion they say Happy Christmas to keep from getting, uh, you know, five, six hundred years ago, to keep from it getting confused with Merry Christmas, which could have meant Mighty Christmas or Great Christmas, and they wanted to wish you a Happy Christmas. So they actually used the word happy rather than a word that had several different meanings at the time. Mm -hmm. All right, Ace, I'm going to learn a lot coming up with this next uh, request I have for you, because I'm not entirely sure I know this song. And it's I Wonder As I Wander. Ah, you know, most of the songs you read about that are carols that we sing um, are carols that uh, are a part of English or German history. We don't have many that originated in the United States. Most of the popular music comes from the United States, but the carols themselves do not. This is a classic example of an American carol. What is interesting about it is we wouldn't know it except for a man named John Jacob Niles. He was a very popular singer and composer uh, in Tin Pan Alley and in the 20s and 30s on Broadway. And he loved the history of music, and he was wandering through Appalachia during the Great Depression. And he was watching a little girl who was looking through the windows at toys she couldn't afford. And she was singing this little song. And he sat down on a bench with her on this cold night and asked her to sing it again. And he wrote down the lyrics. And then he said, well, where does it come from? She said, I don't know. My mother uh, taught it to me and her mother taught it to her. So what he had was an American folk song about the birth of Christ that happened to have been written probably a hundred or more years before it was discovered, you know, and it's a, it's a fabulous little three verse song that is so quietly inspirational. You know, I wonder as I wander out under the sky, how Jesus the savior did come to die for poor, only people like you and me. I wonder how I wander out under the sky. When Mary birthed Jesus was in a cow stall with wise men and farmers and shepherds and all, but high from God's heaven, a starlight did fall and the promise of ages it then did recall. If Jesus had wanted for any wee thing, a star in the sky or a bird in the wing of all of God's angels in heaven to sing, he surely could have because he was the king. Those, those verses pretty much describe Jesus about as clearly as any of the songs do. Um, and it gives us an insight into how common people, probably with British backgrounds, because you noticed in that song there were, there were we and other things that had to do with uh, kind of the British slang of that time. And so this was a, uh, this was a folk song that was American and became a, a big hit during the Depression and has remained um, a popular song, particularly in the South ever since. And uh, the little tune on it is just absolutely uh you know, it's it's once it gets in your head, you can't leave it. I'll probably be humming this song the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, 
I can't wait to hear it or to go back and hear it. And maybe I'll go, oh, yeah, I've heard that song. We'll find out. Yeah. All right, let's take a little break. Ace Collins is my guest, and we're talking about his book, Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas. We'll be right back. Ace Collins is my guest. We are talking Christmas music, and don't we all love it? I know I do. I hope you do, too. His book is Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. It's so fun to take this from a historical perspective. I'm going to read some lyrics, Ace, and I'd love for you to comment on this because these lyrics are so wonderful. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar, field and mountain moor. Field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Yeah, uh, it's a song that John Hopkins wrote, uh, Jr. Um, He wrote it for his children. He's an American and uh, was a preacher. And later... Rude, the fact that he wrote the song. Really? <laughs> That's one of the funniest things about it. In fact, he was thinking, oh, no, what have I done? Because he wrote the song about the three kings of Orient, and he lived long enough to realize that everybody everywhere started to visualize three different magi coming to visit Christ when the Bible has no <laughs> um, has no language at all about how many wise men there were. True. And it even got worse when they started giving names to the three wise men. And he was going, no, 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 that's not what I meant. There were three gifts and it just worked well with the song. Ultimately speaking, he repainted how we visualize the holidays as having only three wise men. And of course, then you had the book that came out that was a bestseller called The Fourth Wise Men. And, and so in this wonderful little children's song, he came to realized that he had misinformed the public as a preacher. And he, he kind of he kind of went through life wishing he hadn't done that. By the same token, it is one of the most wonderful Christmas carols, along with Old Little Town of Bethlehem, which was written about the same time, that any of us have ever heard. You know, and, and so it's easy to learn, it's easy to sing, and children just love this song. Yeah, they do. So I want to make sure in our time remaining, we've got another eight or nine minutes, but I also want to make sure I've covered your personal favorite. Oh, we've talked about my favorite, but, you know, I, I just mentioned A Little Town of Bethlehem. I think it's a wonderful story there. Let's hear that. Because Philip Brooks, who was the writer of that song, was the best-known preacher of his time. He was so well-known that he was asked to do the funeral service for Abraham Lincoln. Um, and the funeral service for Abraham Lincoln just literally put him into it, the skids, a deep, dark depression. Uh, between that and, and seeing so many of his congregation die in the Civil War, he actually gave up his uh, position in his in his church, uh, literally gave up his faith and left America. He wow. toured Europe for a while and found himself in the Middle East um, in 1866 on Christmas Eve and rented a horse. I didn't know you could rent horses, but you could actually rent a horse just like you could a car back then and 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 rode all night long from Jerusalem to Bethlehem um, 
and came into the city of Bethlehem at dawn that day and was overcome by being there at dawn on Christmas Day. So overwhelmed that his faith was restored, and he went back and took over his church in Baltimore and wrote a poem for the children of that church, which was set to music, and we know it as O Little Town of Bethlehem. And it is a wonderful story about the Christmas, the first Christmas, but by the same token, it is also an even greater story of a man who suffered great depression, who lost his faith and went back and found it and pulled himself out of the deep, the depths of depression and became a guiding force that also opened the door to thousands upon thousands of other finding hope and faith as well. Mm-hmm. When it's was... a, you know, it's a story that I'll get to tell very often, but the Philip, Philip Brooks story is, is one of the great stories, not just of Christmas, but of but of um, um, those who were in in the church in America. Yeah, I, I remember asking it, what song brought tears down your cheeks, and you said, "Oh, Holy Night." Is that also your favorite? Because I wanted to make sure if that was your favorite, and if it wasn't your favorite, I wanted to find out which one was. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it definitely has more meaning to me okay. than Grandma got run over by a reindeer, um, <laughs> which is the song I get asked about more than any others. But I, I, I think, and by the guy, way, we're not going to go into the story behind the song. It's a great story on Grandma, but I will tell you that the man who wrote that song never never had another song that was recorded and now makes his living as an air traffic controller. Oh, that's hysterical. That's so and funny. And so that, that is a funny note on that. I, I think there's another song that I, I think, in a from a, a sacred sense, I mean, they're, they're, you know, I love the Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire by Nat too. King Cole. I love the that. Mere fact, that mere fact that he became the Jackie Robinson of Christmas music and brought color to Christmas with that song written by Mel Torme and Robert Wells is, is one of the great songs of all time. I think I'll Be Home for Christmas is probably uh, has such great impact because it was written during World War II when people weren't home for Christmas. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to that song is going to have a tremendous impact this year as we don't get together many of us for Christmas with families. Uh, White Christmas being released and, and first on the radio and first sung on the radio on Christmas Eve 1941, uh, right after we'd entered World War II, has such a great story behind it. But of all of those popular songs, I think a song written by Noel and his wife, Gloria, Do You Hear What I Hear? If you listen to the lyrics, they are so profound. It has a tremendous meaning to me. And then I think a secular song that Willie Nelson wrote uh, that Roy Orbison had the big hit on in the 60s that we still hear each and every year, which is Pretty Paper, which everybody thinks is a love song. But if you listen to the lyrics, you find out Willie Nelson wrote a song about a homeless guy on the street that everybody passed by and nobody stopped. Hmm. and share Christmas with him. And I think when you really hear the message of Pretty Paper, it, it represents the meth- the message that all of people of faith at Christmas should have. And that's not just, you know, not just getting caught up in the hustle and bustle, but also sharing the spirit of the season with those who are the least of these. Mm-hmm. And so I think if I listen to Pretty Paper very closely, it moves me each and every time I hear it. So... Ace, when I see songs like Angels We Have Heard on High, which we've talked about, and and some of the Hark the Herald Angels, then how do we come up with the song, What Child Is This? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a legitimate question. I mean, you know, it's, it's an English folk song is what it is. And it has been set, it was probably written during the age of William Shakespeare. And, and uh, while, What Child Is This is the question that I think all of us ask at one time or another, um, 
this is the son of God, mm-hmm. but it's hard for us to comprehend that. And it was hard 500 years ago for people to comprehend that. They actually wanted to ask that question. What child is this? Why should it matter? Why, what, why is this child so different than everyone else? And I think the answer to that is found in another classic, classic hymn. You know, they answer it in, in this one. But that, that person who wrote that song was probably all very, very familiar with uh, the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is now known by historians as the seven O's. Each verse starts with an O, and each verse gives a different perspective on who Christ was. And I think we're still asking the question today, what child is this? What does this child mean to us personally? So what child is this? really is probably the greatest Advent song ever penned by a common person. It defines Advent. That's what, that's what we're supposed to ask at Advent. What child is this, and what does that mean to my life, and what does that mean to the world? Mm-hmm. Ace, who, uh, talk about a good King Wenceslas. Well, that's the story of Santa Claus. You know, you, you're in a situation where, you know, it's St. Nicholas— as he's known by the Catholic Church, Nicholas, Nicholas of Bari, a, a cardinal, uh, spent his life giving to the least of these throughout his life, and they started the celebration of St. Nicholas because of that. And then a man who was very, very religious five, six hundred years later in Bohemia, um, he was a duke, went out every Christmas Eve and took the poorest of the poor, everything from firewood to food to clothing in Latvia. And he was King Wenceslas. That was actually not his name. That was a British—we uh, put that Wenceslas on there. Uh, the Brits did. But nevertheless, this young duke represented the spirit of Christmas. And, and between the duke and St. Nicholas, they uh, have the DNA, if you will, that spawned Santa Claus. And, and so Santa Claus very much has Christian roots. And, and so when you look at King Wenceslas, you're hearing— the story of a man who lived out Matthew 25, 35 through 40 every day of his life, and that is making sure this rich man who was the ruler of his kingdom, that the poorest of the poor were who he served, not the wealthy. Mm. Just uh, amazing. So when you listen to music in your home, how much do you listen to um, lyrics and music, and how much of it is instrumental? I prefer because of the message the the listening to the song with lyrics yeah you know i've got a 1957 horlitzer jukebox and <laughs> every year i take all 100 records out of that that i have in there and put only christmas music in for a month and i love to go through and hear the different versions of these popular songs and for me each person puts their own spin on it and i like I think, therefore, if I'm listening to Perry Como's version of a song such as uh, Little Town of Bethlehem, I'm hearing it different than I would if I heard a church choir singing. I'd notice more things about it than I would have otherwise. Yeah. I also like to think about when the song was recorded and what the impact was, because if you think about the songs, the Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, uh, the Christmas song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, and White Christmas were all released during World War II, and I was thinking about the impact that those songs would would have had on a nation that was uh, a little bit low on faith and certainly missing millions and millions of Americans who were overseas fighting a conflict that these people did not know if their loved ones would come back and be at the table again. And I think when you think about those songs in their original formats, recorded by Nat King Cole, Judy Garland, 
and being Crosby, you you realize the power that the simple message in those mm -hmm. songs had to those people at that time. Yeah. You know, what's ironic to me is we've now lost more to COVID than we lost in World War II. And oh. so and so I think that songs this Christmas are going to mean more because of the there are so many families like my own who have lost loved ones during this year to this disease that Christmas of 2020 will be remembered a long time with a bit of sadness. Mm -hmm. Well, I so appreciate, Ace, your beautiful storytelling, and you help us bring all of these Christmas songs into a much sharper focus. So when we start hearing these and uh, singing along uh, with our choirs and our, our, our families and everything else, we'll have a little bit of extra nudge in our heart as to what's going on uh, because of your, um, your storytelling. So thank you so much for doing this. And I, all, all the listeners out there and y'all, please have a mighty Christmas, not just a Merry Christmas. A mighty Use animal. that old English and embrace it and have it. a mighty Christmas. Find some way to make it powerful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ace. Ace Collins has been my guest. His book is Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas. You can head over and pick that up on Amazon.com. You can get a Kindle version of the book for $1.99 right now. You're going to like this book. It's a treasure of information and history of all the songs of Christmas. Not all, but a whole bunch of them. So that wraps up our show. Have a wonderful and mighty Christmas, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.